0: Hey everybody, it's David Pluff Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we have a ticket. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They will hopefully make history together, defeating Donald Trump, first African-American major party nominee. Um, we can see just in the last... Um, really 12 to 16 hours, how excited people are. We knew this pick was coming, we knew Kamala Harris was a possibility, but uh, it certainly strikes me how excited people seem to be uh, about this. Um, I think they're gonna be a very strong partnership on the campaign trail. Most importantly, if Joe Biden wins, I think she'll be just an incredible asset uh, as a partner in government, and digging us out of this hole Donald Trump has left us domestically, internationally. So um, we'll hear from her today her first remarks with Joe Biden as his running mate, Uh, that's always a a big moment when the two of them join. Uh, But I think for Kamala Harris, as you think about the campaign, she's got two big hurdles in front of her. She needs to give an excellent speech next Wednesday um, during the Democratic Convention, virtual though it may be. uh, It will still be an important moment, and then uh, the most important moment for any vice presidential nominee is that debate. So there's one VP debate. Uh, It's currently scheduled for October 7th in Salt Lake City. Uh, We assume it's Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, although I still don't think it's out of the question that Donald Trump dumps Pence in the next couple weeks. Um, You know, it's different because traditionally you have a running mate and um, the presidential candidate may be in Ohio and Wisconsin and Arizona and Nevada in one day. And, you know, the running mate, Maybe in Florida, North Carolina, New Hampshire. Um, that's not the case anymore. Uh, maybe at some point in the fall, there'll be some traveling like that, but right now it's all virtual. So, you know, she'll be uh, able to do a lot of interviews, um, do a lot of grassroots uh, organizing events, fundraising events. I think she'll be really helpful to, uh, in the Biden campaign on questions around voter suppression and voter protection and making sure that we can actually execute this election. So um, really exciting day uh, for Joe Biden and his campaign, I think, uh, for the Democratic Party, I would argue for the country. So I'm excited to see how Kamala Harris gets out of the gate here. Um, I'll have more on that. We're going to drop an episode later in the week where we'll talk about the Democratic Convention as we are uh, getting very close to that. Uh, But today, we're going to go deep into the United States Senate. We've spent most of our time on this podcast on the presidential race. But we're gonna talk about the United States Senate, a prime opportunity, a necessary opportunity for the Democrats to win back the Senate. Um, The map has gotten more favorable in the last two to three months, similar to the presidential race. You've got core battleground states that have been there since the beginning. uh, The Arizona Senate race, the North Carolina Senate race, uh, the Maine Senate race, the Colorado Senate race. But there's some additional races that have come onto the map you know, that I think are still uphill climbs, but look like they are, you know, plausible now. Uh, And like I've talked about in the presidential race, where you want to be competing in as many battlegrounds as possible, so you can lose a bunch of them and still win the presidency. That's going to be important in the Senate as well. Um, But I think just given some of the challenges the Democratic Party has right now with our competitiveness in all 50 states, um, you know, it wasn't too long ago, we had all four senators in the Dakotas, had senators throughout the South, uh, had uh, you know, senators in Nebraska, you know, let's hope that becomes the case again. But right now, we have to make the most of every Senate race because our ceiling in the Senate is lower uh, than it was even 10 or 12 years ago. So um, let's hope most of these close races tip our way so that we can get well north of 50 uh, in the United States Senate. If Joe Biden wins, his presidency in part will be determined in terms of its success or failure or somewhere in between by what happens in the Senate, because if the Republicans hold on to the Senate in a Biden presidency scenario and Mitch McConnell's the majority leader, um, the vast majority of anything he'd want to do legislatively is dead on arrival. He'll still have a lot of leeway with executive actions in the realm of foreign policy. Um, But if we are able to win back the Senate and Hopefully we will get rid of the filibuster, uh, as no less an expert than President Barack Obama suggested uh, recently. Um, Then I think a lot of the plans that Joe Biden has offered the American people uh, have a chance to succeed. So we're going to go deep in the Senate with Scott Fairchild, who's the executive director of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. It's known in political circles as the DSEC. I worked there a long time ago, uh, back in the day. In fact, uh, one of my projects when I was there to was to work on a special election in Oregon, which was the first all-mail-in election, if I recall, in the United States. And it worked then, and we need it to work now. Um, Scott has run successful races in Nevada, in uh, Illinois, in Pennsylvania, uh, at the senatorial level, congressional level, mayoral level. So he understands politics uh, in all its firms, and he's tasked now to, to lead the organization. That's mandate is to protect Democratic incumbents, uh, in this cycle, that really is just Doug Jones um, down in Alabama, and we'll talk about that race in our discussion with Scott. Uh, and then, you know, help recruit, make sure they're funded well, hire a good staff, have good strategies in all the Challenger and open sea races. So we're going to take a tour of the country as it relates to the United States Senate. I know many of you are already involved in these Senate races financially, uh, volunteering, um, but hopefully it'll give you a deeper sense of what the Senate map looks like and our various pathways to a democratic majority. So here is Scott Fairchild. Scott Fairchild, executive director of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Thanks for joining us on Campaign HQ. Hey, thanks for having me on. No, of course. Eager to talk to you about the Senate. Before we jump into you know the races in the map and the road to a majority, let's start by um, you run the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Uh, it's known in Washington through its acronyms, DSCC. Just talk about what the DSCC does and the role it plays in trying to protect incumbents and defeat Republican incumbents.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the way to think about the DSCC is it's laser focused on the election and defeat of, of Senate candidates, defending our Democratic incumbents um, and defeating uh, Republican Senate candidates. Um, that is the, the central focus of the organization. Um, I think you, our work could broadly be put into three buckets. The first is everything we do on the coordinated or, or hard side of the campaign to directly assist the, the Senate candidates and the state parties um, where we're competing. The second thing is there's a separate DSCC independent expenditure that uh, runs television commercials and digital ads for our candidates. And then the last piece is all of our voter rights uh, and legal work. The DSCC is actually doing more voter rights litigation than any other organization in the country. Um, Much of this started pre-pandemic, but um, focusing on protecting the franchise, protecting people's right to vote by mail or early vote. Um, and make sure that they they have a a chance to to cast their ballot and that ballot is is, is counted. So those are I would say broad broad brushstrokes. The, the three places where we we help Senate candidates win.
0: Okay, well, that's helpful context. So let's jump in. So right now, the Republicans have 53 seats, Democrats 47, including, you know, Bernie Sanders and Angus King, who caucus with the Democrats. So if Joe Biden wins the presidency, you need three net to win back the Senate. Uh, If Donald Trump um, disastrously, you know, holds on, you need four. So let's start with you. It looks and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's one incumbent Senator that you think will have a tough race this time, uh, who is Senator Doug Jones, who won that uh, remarkable victory, um, in a special election. So let's talk about that race. Cause obviously if Doug Jones wins, then, um, you know, you're not in the hole at all. If he obviously loses, uh, then you go down to 46, uh, and need to yep. pick up an additional seat. So let's talk about that race first.
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So Doug Jones, if he was on this podcast, he would tell you he's the underdog just because of uh, how Republican leaning the, the state is. But Jones definitely has uh, a couple advantages over a typical Democrat. Um, the first is he, uh, I think he will get record African-American turnout like he did in his special election. Jones is very popular in the African-American community. He prosecuted the, the Birmingham church bombers, uh, he, the bombing from the 60s that was prosecuted in the 90s. He prosecuted those bombers. He has a long, long and compelling record on civil rights. So I think we can expect record African-American turnout. Um, and then Doug Jones overperforms with younger Republicans, suburban Republican women, college-educated Republicans. Um, he overperforms with with those groups, um, and then you add to that Joe Biden's numbers in Alabama are are looking much stronger. I'm not suggesting he's going to win Alabama, but Biden is is um, closing the gap and losing Alabama by a much closer margin, which makes it a little easier for Jones to make it over the top. You know, we're seeing Biden, you know, Biden down by by 10, 11 points instead of losing Alabama by twenty to thirty points. So that makes it a little easier for Jones. And then Tuberville has some big problems. Um, His Florida residency, and then uh, he had a two-person investment firm. The other person in the firm went to prison for securities fraud. So he has a lot to to answer for in the the November election.
0: Sounds kind of swampy. So um, that's just important context because for those of you uh, looking to help Senate races, um, you know, Doug Jones obviously um, is someone who's just got a terrific background and record, won a stirring special election. But him winning that race is the difference between having to pick up three versus four in a Biden win scenario. So it, it's a uh, it's a huge deal. So Scott, um, let's talk. You mentioned Biden doing better in Alabama, and before we jump into individual races, I mean you've got races whether it's Alaska, South Carolina, Montana, Alabama. Um, where, you know, Biden likely isn't going to win those states. Uh, You know, maybe we'll all be shocked. And the question is, you know, and there's some distinction, I know, in each of those. But, like, how much can a Democratic Senate candidate – uh, overperform a Democratic presidential nominee? Like kind of what what range? So the point there is like, you know, Doug Jones is going to get some ticket splitters. Steve Bullock in Montana will get some ticket splitters. But there comes a point where it's, the, the gap's just too big. So kind of what range do they need Biden to get in?
1: Yeah, I think it varies a lot by state. You know, if you look at the 2016 map, and I, I, was, I ran Senator Cortez Masto's um, Senate race in Nevada in 2016. Her margin was just slightly ahead of Secretary Clinton's margin. Maggie Hassan, Senator Hassan, got just about the same amount as Secretary Clinton in New Hampshire. A lot of the races in 16 tracked very closely to the presidential. Jason Kander in Missouri was one big exception. And uh, one of the t- reasons for that is because he's a, he was a military veteran. He, he overperformed Secretary Clinton pretty dramatically in Missouri. Uh, he was he lost, but he overperformed the top of the ticket by a lot. And you know, I think for us, we have a lot of veterans running this year, and I think that does give them a chance to overperform the top of the ticket. Gary Peters in Michigan, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina, Amy McGrath in Kentucky, MJ Hagar in Texas. We have a lot of we have a lot of um, decorated and well respected military veterans running this year, and I think that. That, that will give them a chance to overperform the top of the ticket. I think in a lot of states the presidential performance and the Senate performance will track will track closely but Democratic candidates have certainly proven that they can overperform the top of the, the ticket um, Joe Manchin, uh, John Tester and then also uh, Governor Bullock uh, Governor Bullock won re- re-election for governor in 2016 by four points, while Secretary Clinton was losing Montana by 20 points. Um, so we know people like Tester or Bullock can, can overperform the top of the ticket, that Montana Democrats have a, a unique brand and perform well for AG and governor and, and Senate. So we certainly like our, our chances there. And then in a lot of other states, the they'll perform closer to the top of the ticket, but Michigan, Arizona, places like that—that's just fine. The Biden numbers are are looking pretty good,
0: right? So, um, I said I just wanted one question before we jumped in a race. I have one more. So, you know, you mentioned we just talked about kind of where the presidential nominee has to be uh, to win. In some cases, it'll track very uh, closely. Others, you mentioned uh, Montana, Alabama, it won't. One of the other challenges back when I used to run Senate races a long time ago was, you know, in a presidential year, you know, one of the challenges is. You know, to make sure that the Senate candidate is getting as close to the same number of votes as the presidential candidate, because one of the things that's always concerning is, you know, in a state, let's say the presidential candidate gets, you know, a million five hundred thousand votes, but people don't vote the rest of the ticket. And if you only get one million three hundred thousand votes, it can be a challenge. So what is your strategies to make sure that in these states our candidates are getting as close to this, particularly in the base, the same amount of votes as, as Joe Biden is?
1: Yeah. The first step is on the both the airwaves and the digital advertising, making sure that our candidates are are well-funded um, and are, are running enough television and digital advertising to, to close the name ID gap so that they are just as well-known as as Joe Biden or as, as close to it as humanly possible. That's step one. And then the second piece is through the state parties. And we're very lucky this cycle, the state party partners have been really fantastic. The, with the state parties, making sure that our coordinated campaigns are maximizing both the, the knowledge about our candidates and then making sure people complete the ballot and have as little, uh, under vote as as humanly possible. So they're constantly hearing the, the Senate candidates name, uh, over the phone, over the phone or through the mail. It used to be on the doors, but, uh, less of that these days due to the the pandemic but if they're getting enough touches on mail and phones digital plus the television advertising that should minimize that that uh, that undervote problem that that you outlined
0: Right. Okay. Let's so let's jump into races. And you obviously, Scott, um, if I'm not mentioning a race, um, you just jump in. But let's start with uh, actually the core presidential battlegrounds. You mentioned Senator Gary Peters, Democratic incumbent. I don't want to dwell on that because, you know, Biden's got a huge lead there. There's some su- suggestion Trump's going to drop out and Peters looks sound, but we know that's going to be a tough race. So let's talk about Arizona and North Carolina two prime battlegrounds where right now Joe Biden's leading in polling, uh, both uh, Mark Kelly and Arizona Cal Cunningham are leading. How do you see those two races? And are those our two best chances for pickups? I don't mention, we'll talk about Colorado in a minute, So let's focus on North Carolina and Arizona.
1: Yeah. So I think for us, um, like you said, we can we can come back to Colorado. So we're not f- forgetting about that important opportunity. But in, in Arizona and North Carolina, I think we have we have really strong candidates. I just mentioned, uh, you know how both are both are military veterans. I, both I think are going to perform better than the top of the ticket. And Mark Kelly, who's a, a first time first time candidate, he's outraised Martha McSally, who's the incumbent, six quarters in a row. He has an eleven million dollar cash on hand advantage over McSally. For your listeners, um, Martha McSally ran and lost for Senate in twenty eighteen to now Senator Cinema, and then was reappoint was appointed to the other seat. So she's not actually been, a, even though she's a Senator, she's, she's not been an elected Senate incumbent, which makes her even weaker. And then in the North Carolina Senate seat, Cal Cunningham has also proven to be an excellent candidate, really strong fundraising. He's, um, he's been outraising Tom Tillis, um, the last couple quarters and, um, out polling him. Tillis is, um, Job approval rating is in the high 20s, low 30s. So I think you're seeing in, in that case, um, I think Cunningham's chances are good. We're not taking it for granted. I mean, the DSEC has reservations and spending that are very aggressive in both Arizona and North Carolina. But, you know, I I, th- I like our, our chances in, in both of those races.
0: So, uh, Scott, I've talked to some of our uh, guests previously about this question as it relates to the presidential, but it's closely linked to your uh, Senate races. Are you, how concerned are you about um, sort of astronomically high or unusually high turnout for Trump in some of these battlegrounds that would then flow down to the Senate races? Or do you think his current troubles hurt him not just with swing voters, but also going to harm his ability to really jack the kind of turnout, you know, they need to win?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think turnout across the board is going to be really high. We've certainly saw that in the last couple Democratic primaries Montana, Iowa, Georgia, Texas, both primary and runoff. Turnout was high, uh, but higher and more enthusiastic for our side. I think Trump has a couple problems. One, I think he's losing. A lot of Obama Trump voters are coming back to the Democratic Party. I do think his enthusiasm will be dampened by his handling of the pandemic. And lastly, I think he's creating a lot of chaos and confusion with his voters by constantly criticizing vote by mail. Vote by mail and absentee mail ballots are something that both parties and all Americans can and should use. And it's causing a lot of confusion and dampening enthusiasm in his base. And it's mystifying because, you know, President Trump votes absentee. His family members vote absentee. It's something that Republicans in many states, um, you know, use as a tool or tactic, as they should. It's a perfectly appropriate way to vote. So I think that's creating a, a lot of chaos for his base by denigrating vote-by-mail absentee voting.
0: Yeah. So uh, have you picked up at all, Scott? I mean, the, the Senate Republicans, whether they be incumbents or challengers that are running, have to be furious at Trump because none of them are denigrating vote by mail. In fact, Trump's own campaign is not denigrating vote by mail. It's only Trump. I mean, what's your view on that? Because I agree with that. And, and the polling seems to suggest that you know there's starting to be a pretty big gap between how Democrats and Republicans view vote by mail, dangers on election day. And you know maybe at the end of the day, it's not going to be a huge difference, but in close states and close races, it could be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I would imagine it's very frustrating for Republican Senate candidates, but they chose to embrace President Trump. They haven't stood up to him for nearly four years, and um, it's way too late now for them to try and separate from him. So they're going to have to own his mistakes, and I think you know you're going to see that play out. I mean, just like in 2018 when we took the House back, they're going to own President Trump and their own record on health care, and we're running on health care, and you're going to see the arguments we were making about healthcare have only been amplified by the pandemic. You know, the arguments around protecting pre-existing conditions on things like Medicaid expansion. If those were a good idea before the pandemic, they're an even better idea now.
0: And are most of your candidates now running advertising and doing message events around healthcare?
1: Oh, absolutely. All of our candidates um, have talked about healthcare and a lot of our candidates, you know, I'll give you two examples. Governor Hickenlooper, added over half a million Coloradans to the healthcare roles through both the, through both Obamacare and Medicaid expansion. Governor Bullock was able to expand Medicaid in, in, in Montana. Um, and even pre-pandemic, this was helping improve healthcare outcomes for Montanans and Coloradans. But I think you're seeing um, those healthcare arguments have only been amplified. All of our candidates are, are talking about healthcare on the campaign trail. And on the airwaves
0: so uh scott you mentioned john hickenlooper let's talk about a couple of um, they're really not battleground states right now they're they're lean Biden in both colorado and maine although the second congressional district in maine will be competitive yet again so let's talk about those two states where you've got uh, both cory gardner and susan collins um they i assume would be in your scenario to get to 50 close to must wins maybe they are missed ones talk about those two races
1: yeah absolutely so um in colorado cory gardner is Tied way too closely to to Donald Trump. That's why he's going to lose. Governor Hickenlooper. Um, for your listeners, um, Governor Hickenlooper was the long-serving mayor of Denver, and then and then was elected in both 2010 and re-elected in 2014. Um, governor of Colorado, uh, very popular figure in the state, and uh, he's got an, an incredible record. He talks about both ex- what he did to expand healthcare for Coloradans, but he also talks about how when he was governor, Colorado went from the mid-40s to number one in job creation. So he's a popular, well-known, well-respected figure. And then you contrast that with, you know, Cory Gardner, who's just a complete rubber stamp for Donald Trump, no separation from Trump on anything meaningful. So that race is looking really good for us we're not going to take it for granted. We're working hard. Governor Hickenlooper is raising money. He's getting out on the campaign trail virtually as aggressively as he can, but we feel really good about our chances there.
0: And what there's, uh, there's the you know the conventional wisdom uh, is that that John Hickel, who's a you know friend of mine, and I've spent a lot of time on the campaign drill in Colorado, has has had a few stumbles. Um, are you picking that up in the polls? Or, for instance, do you think there's a chance that uh, you know, as a former governor, quite popular, he's able to outperform Joe Biden in Colorado? You know, even though Biden could be heading to a pretty significant win in Colorado. Yeah, I I, I do. I think uh, Governor Hickenlooper's. Um,
1: He's, he's a popular, well-known, well-respected figure in the state. So, I, you know, I just uh, – w- in the, the polling that I see, you know, you see a really very large, well-outside-the-margin-of-error path for, for Hickenlooper. Um, you know, it's still a purple state. We have to, like, work hard and not take it for granted, but we're seeing Hickenlooper's numbers really strong against Gardner.
0: Okay, and let's talk about the cowardly Susan Collins up in Maine. Yeah, so –
1: in early 2019 I you could definitely call me a, a main skeptic Susan Collins won re-election in 2014 with uh, with over 68 percent of the vote um, so you know I started the cycle skeptical about uh, winning that seat but we recruited the Speaker of the State House Sarah Gideon and she's proven to be an incredibly adept campaigner Not only is she dramatically outraising Susan Collins, and most importantly, she's outraising her with um, low-dollar contributions, which is true across the board, but she's she's outraising Susan Collins. But the other thing that Gideon has done that's really smart, she was doing this pre-pandemic, and then she's continued this post-pandemic. She was doing town halls in every single town throughout Maine once the pandemic hit now those town halls have you know converted to being either zooms or or telephone town halls so but she's still meeting with mainers town by town and answering questions which is something susan collins hasn't done a town hall in in years so i think she's getting a lot of credit for showing up showing up used to be in person and now it's been switched to more virtually but it's still she's still doing virtual events that are dedicated to to focusing on this town, answering questions from Mainers in this town, then the next town, then the next town. And I think she's getting a lot of credit for, for doing that. Um, so what we're seeing in that race is um, Gideon has a, a small lead. Um, I think Sarah Gideon is probably up by, you know, two to five points depending on who you ask. And I think the problem for, for Susan Collins is um, she's tied too closely to Trump on a number of key issues the Republican tax bill, which benefited wealthy people, but really didn't benefit Mainers. And then not just the vote for Kavanaugh, but also just the, you can't say you're pro-choice and then fill the court with anti-choice federalist society judges and, and Mainers see through that. So I think our our odds of winning there are are, are really excellent.
0: Well, no, uh, the skepticism, I think was understandable because, you know, you mentioned Jason Kander in Missouri. Uh, in 16, who who really dramatically outperformed Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, Doug Jones will need to do that and will clearly outperform Joe Biden. The question is by how much. You would have thought at the beginning of this cycle that, you know, that's one of the issues with Collins is she's just going to do so much better because she's shown an ability to wing a lot of swing voters, even Democrats, that even if our nominee won, you know, by three or four or five points, would it be enough? And it seems like right now she's become – um, a traditional Republican is that fair, or does she still have some outsized strength there cons- compared to other incumbent Republicans?
1: I mean, she's certainly running stronger than than Trump is in Maine, but not by enough. I think people right. are starting to see that when the rubber really hits the road, she votes with with Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, and then you know combine that with I mean, part of what turned me around on this race was our candidate recruitment. Sarah Gideon is. She knows the state. She has an impressive record as Speaker of the State House on things like opioids, property tax cuts. Um, She certainly knows the state. And then she's proven to be a really adept campaigner in terms of both meeting with voters and and raising money. Um, And she's got a small dollar grassroots army that she can just go back to time and time again. And that's true across our map. Um, Most of our candidates are out raising the senate incumbents especially with small dollar donations which allows us to you know go back to people again and again to make sure that you know our candidates are competitive
0: Okay. So let's talk about some um, states that we didn't consider, uh, you know, even two or three months ago could be uh, presidential battlegrounds or at least close, but where you also have Senate races. So that dynamic helps you. You've got Iowa, uh, Greenfield Ernst, you've got uh, Georgia, the race against the um, sort of quasi criminal Kelly Loeffler, um, you've got. Well, let's start. Let's talk about those two, uh, and then let's throw maybe throw Montana in there, where you know clearly uh, Trump is going to win Montana almost certainly, but that's also going to be more competitive. Let's talk about those three states.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, working for Cortez Masto, she always likes me to start west, so I'll. I'll go <laughs> west. Right. So yeah, I mean, look, um, Governor Bullock is. I mean, you, you can't get a better recruit in, in Montana. He's still the governor. He gets high marks um, for handling uh, both the pandemic and the economy. He's, he's a well-known brand. People know who he is. They know that he's a Montana Democrat. Uh, he won attorney general and uh, two gubernatorial races. So he's a proven statewide vote getter in Montana. And he's, he's well-known, well-liked, certainly um, has a lot of crossover appeal. And I think you see in, in Steve Daines, um, this is true for a lot of the candidates we're trying to beat. McSally was never elected to the Senate. Leffler never elected to the Senate. And then the rest of the map with the exception of Susan Collins are pretty weak candidates that won in 2014. They won in a really good year. And that was certainly true for, for Steve Daines. He only won in 2014 and doesn't have much of a brand. Montanans are just starting to learn that Steve Daines lived in China for four years working for a company to outsource American jobs from the United States to China. They didn't know that in 2014, but they, they sure know that now. So this tough on China stuff isn't going to, isn't going to work, especially in a case like this, where the guy lived in China for four years and outsourced American jobs to China. That's not going to stack up well against governor Bullock's record. So, you know, I think, That's going to be a hotly contested race. Um, It's going to be a a close race all the way through, but I would much rather be us than them.
0: All right. Let's talk about Georgia. Oh no, let's talk about Iowa. We're going west to east. So I I think a race that people are surprised is in the conversation, um, is Iowa. So, so where's that race stand?
1: Yeah, absolutely. they shouldn't be surprised, but, um, it's great. And I think the Des Moines register after the June primary was over the Des Moines register, which is well-respected. They came out with a poll that showed Greenfield beating Ernst um, uh, by three points, and that I justifiably gave Greenfield a lot of momentum. Joni Ernst is another Senate incumbent who she won in 2014, which was a great year for Republicans, but um, it definitely is shown to be weaker than people thought she was. Um, this is definitely a toss-up race. Biden is doing well at the top of the ticket. I think Biden could win Iowa. President Obama won Iowa in twenty twelve by six points. Secretary Clinton lost it by ten points. I think you are seeing Vice President Biden is is going to be competitive here. Um, I think he has a real shot at winning Iowa. And then in Teresa Greenfield, we have a we have a candidate who um, grew up in a rural community. Her father was a crop duster. Um, she knows her way around ag issues in Iowa, and she has a really compelling story about living on social security disability. When her husband, he was an IBW lineman. He was electrocuted on the job. She was widowed at age 24. She lived on social security and a pension. And then you contrast that with Joni Ernst talking about how we need to quote unquote reform social security behind closed doors. So I think the social security argument, the ACA arguments that we're making, when you have a candidate um, like like Teresa Greenfield, there's no better no better candidate to get that message out. Um, so we feel you know we feel really good about our chances that Montana and Iowa were both going to be hard fought races um, through and through. But you know we we feel it, this this is a, a a very winnable race.
0: You make a really important point about some of these Republican incumbents. I mean, uh, so many of them, almost all of them, other than Collins, one in fourteen. Which, you know, you could have run a terrible race if you were Republican and and made it through your primary and won. Um, Conversely, you know, a lot of Democrats who won in the House and Senate back in 08, as you remember, you know, that was ideal circumstances, too. So whether it was 2010 in the House or 14 in the Senate, tougher races. So important to understand the conditions, uh, you know, under which people came in office. So in Georgia, I mentioned um, – Loffler, but you actually have two Senate races in Georgia. So so talk about that, yeah. which I think confuses people well, why they are and who's running and and whether they're going to perform uh, independently or or largely in the same trajectory.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So here I'll try and do the cliff notes version of of Georgia cuz it's complicated, but so there's two races. There's the the David Perdue seat, Perdue, another senator who won for the first time in 2014. In the Perdue seat, He's facing off against John Ossoff, and on the November ballot, you're going to have Purdue, Ossoff, and one Libertarian. If nobody gets 50 percent of the vote, the top two vote getters will go to the January 5th runoff. So that's uh, that's the Purdue seat. Then in the other seat, um, there's going to be a so-called jungle primary in November. So on the November ballot, this is for the Senator Isaacson seat now held by Kelly Loeffler. Um, in that seat, you're going to have 21 candidates on the November ballot, Democrats, Republicans, you name it. And the top two will advance to the January 5th runoff if nobody gets 50% of the vote. So in that seat, Kelly Leffler is running, but so is conservative Congressman Doug Collins. She's going to spend, She's said she's going to spend $20 million of her own money um, and she's going to need to spend every bit of it because- the insider trading that she and her husband were engaged in I think will will really damage her with with Georgia voters during a pandemic people want you to disseminate scientific information not sell shares in Delta Airlines um, it was her conduct was disgraceful so I think she's going to have uh, problems from her right because of congressman Doug Collins who's a well-known uh, conservative congressman from northeastern Georgia. And then the DSCC's candidate is um, Reverend Raphael Warnock. Reverend Warnock is the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist, um, Martin Luther King's uh, church in in Atlanta. Warnock grew up very poor in Savannah, Georgia, um, went to Morehouse College on a scholarship, and became a very successful and well-known, well-respected pastor. Um, I think he's an exciting, dynamic candidate, and I think he's... Um, He's gonna. He's driving a lot of energy and enthusiasm. So we we think we like his chances of of finishing top two and
0: advancing to that January fifth runoff. And explain to people why those two elections are held under different rules.
1: Yeah. So the well, there's there's two pieces to this. The first is that um, Georgia has a rule that you have to get fifty percent of the vote to win, and then they so that which triggers these runoffs. And then with Senator Isaacson was his seat was supposed to be up in 2022, um, but with his retirement for health reasons, um, when he retired, that that forced this special election under different rules, different timing, which is why we have basically two different elections occurring simultaneously.
0: So, if uh, but we could have if, um, If Perdue's held under 50 um, and our candidate, John Ossoff, doesn't get over 50, you'd have just those two candidates on the 5th. And then if it does Ralph Warnock and, let's say, Leffler or Collins, um, you'd have basically those four candidates on the same day on the 5th over the holidays. So so I'm sure you'll take issue with this, but one question I have for you, Scott, is in a scenario where that happens, so we've got two – Um, really important Senate races on the 5th of January. Let's say Biden has won the presidency and maybe Democrats have already won the Senate. Let's hope. Is there a concern with those? And I know like that's like you know, you'll deal with this on November the 4th or, you know, November the 14th, but that that dynamic will not be helpful in Georgia because like, you know, we've already gotten rid of Trump and the Democrats at the Senate and now voters say we, you know, we don't want to overdo it. Uh, you know, we've seen that historically that elections that come after that, you know, the November election can be affected. Or, or do you think that won't really be an issue there? Is it too early to, to tell?
1: I think the runoff election, um, it was put there, to give an advantage to Republicans, but right. I think that advantage is starting to erode. Um, when you look at the 2018 runoff, John Barrow lost the, G- the Georgia runoff by less than four points. The, run- the Georgia runoff is starting to become more competitive because mm-hmm. we have this fantastic coalition, and this is true in Georgia, but also in Texas. You have non-white voters are enthusiastically in the democratic coalition. And then you combine that with college educated, white voters, suburban white voters, and I think our party is starting to make a really aggressive play for, um, white non-college voters. But I think that, that runoff coalition in Georgia is, is eroding for their side. So I actually think the January 5th runoff election in Georgia will be, will be competitive, um, for our side even if Joe Biden uh, does win, which is of course the preferred outcome. So I, I think, <laughs> right, right. I think you know, we're going to take, we're going to work hard to make sure that, that Ossoff wins outright in November. And we're going to make sure that uh, Raphael Warnock finishes top two. Um, and then we, we feel great about our chances January 5th. George is changing and it's changing Dramatically,
0: Rapidly. Well, and there's so many people down there who worked so hard in 18 for Stacey Abrams, have worked on House races or worked in this time. So, you know, it's not like they don't they need much of a reason to work harder. But boy, for those in Georgia who are eager for Georgia to become just a core battleground, if if you can if Biden can win those uh, electoral votes or, or keep it real close. And we win one or two of these Senate races, that'll really propel Georgia, I think, uh, for the foreseeable future. As just a core, core battleground state. So Scott, let's talk about some of the races where, um, you know, they're going to be in tougher terrain because it's it's very unlikely that Joe Biden would win. But to your point, he is keeping states closer than we saw in 16. Uh, You've got everywhere from Alaska uh, to South Carolina, you know, some people think Texas could be in play. Talk about those races. Um, And, you know, we can go west to east again. And obviously, if I'm leaving any out, uh, pick them up. But talk about the ones where you're probably not saying we have to win this race. Race, but, you know, for folks like I think we're at a place in our party and, and you you should uh, disagree with me uh, if you think I'm wrong where, you know, we, we are we are not as competitive consistently, you know, in the plains in the south as we were not too long ago Not too long ago we had all four. Uh, senators in the dakotas so there's going to be elections where we are competitive and to your point i think we're showing some real signs of renewed strength with white non-college voters but we as a party cannot waste a single senate race right and so when we have a good electoral year and it's to really to know how good november will be but if it is going to be a good electoral year for a party we got to maximize right and not just wins the one win the ones you have to win you know but hopefully one or two that you weren't expecting at the beginning of the cycle come through well as well so let's talk about some of those races
1: yeah, I mean, one of the ones that I'm very excited about. I think I think we are going to win the Texas Senate race. Hmm. Well, that's um, exciting figured, news. Tell us about that. Yeah, I figured I would break that in, <laughs> in your show. But look, uh, you know, John Cornyn's job approval ratings at 36% and we have a fantastic candidate. MJ Hagar is an Afghan war veteran, decorated Air Force um, veteran, working mom. I think if she, if her fundraising can take off, and I think it's starting to, her p- primary and runoff was delayed because of the pandemic, so her runoff didn't conclude until July fourteenth. But ever since the runoff has concluded, her fundraising has taken off, and Cornyn is weak. Um, you know, I always when I am talking to folks about Texas, I always ask, uh, please name um, all of John Cornyn's accomplishments. I'll, I'll wait. Um, he has not. Um, he's he's not well known. His job approval rating is very soft. MJ Hagar fits the state. She's a motorcycle riding working mom, decorated Afghan war vet. Um, and she's talking about Cornyn's record on health care um, and his record on campaign finance reform. And her record on those two issues will, will beat his record. So I feel very good about this race. Uh, as my friend Paul Begala says, you know, Texas Democrats haven't been doing well lately, but this could be our year. Um, We really think this is a, this is a winnable race.
0: Well, that would be just downright outstanding. All right. So let's talk about, we got Alaska, Kentucky, South Carolina, Uh, just go through all the races where you think folks should be paying attention if they can, helping out with either, you know, financial contributions or, uh, or their time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so in Alaska, Dr. Al Gross, He's a doctor. Uh, He's a commercial fisherman, born and raised in Alaska. Um, Contrast that with Senator Sullivan, who moved to Alaska just a few years back. Um, As folks may not remember this, but Sullivan only won his seat in 2014 by 6,000 votes. So we think that Dr. Gross has a real shot. He's running um, as an independent who would caucus with the Democrats. He's been endorsed by the Alaska Democratic Party. Uh, I think he's got a compelling biography, and I think he has a compelling case to make. Um, he's uh, certainly making the argument that you know Alaska depends on, on three industries, oil, tourism, and fisheries, and they're all being devastated right now by a combination of the, the pandemic and low oil prices. So I think his background is both a doctor and a commercial fisherman. He knows a lot about the Alaska economy. And then he also knows a hell of a lot about healthcare. So I think he's got a good argument to make. The Kansas race, we'll we'll know more in the next couple days, but if Kobach wins that primary, I think everybody in both parties would acknowledge that Kobach is a radioactive candidate. He would really jeopardize the Kansas Senate seat. This is a seat where Democrats haven't won since 1932, but Chris Kobach was the secretary of state. He defeated the incumbent Republican governor in the primary and then went on to lose the general election to Democrat Laura Kelly by over five points. So he's got a radioactive brand. The Republicans know it. Um, If he wins the primary tonight, and we probably won't know until Thursday or Friday, but if he wins the primary tonight, that seat is really vulnerable. And we, I think we've recruited a stellar candidate. Um, Dr. Barbara Bollier. She was a uh, moderate Republican state senator, pro-choice, pro Medicaid expansion. Um, she switched parties a couple years ago because she was so frustrated over the the inability to pass Medicaid expansion, which would which would save lives and improve healthcare outcomes. So she's an impressive doctor, you know, moderate Republican turned moderate Democrat. Um, she's raising a lot of money. I think she's going to make that race really competitive, and we've seen polling that shows her competitive against. Um, Hamilton and Marshall as well, but certainly Kobach would be their weakest candidate and the Republicans know that too.
0: Well, here's hoping for bad news for them this week uh, in their primary. Uh, and How about Kentucky, South Carolina? So in Kentucky,
1: the Republicans are nervous. Mitch McConnell has spent or
0: reserved
1: over $20 million for his Senate race. So even though Trump has won the state in 2016, by 30 points, a bigger margin than he won Alabama. Um, but even despite that, McConnell has a couple problems. One, he's a lot less popular than Donald Trump. Two, Amy McGrath is a decorated Marine fighter pilot, um, native of the Bluegrass State, really compelling biography. Uh, and three, she's raising really impressive fundraising. Um, so he's worried. I mean, and Mitch McConnell wouldn't spend. 20 plus million dollars on his own Senate race if if he wasn't actually worried about losing to, to Amy McGrath. And he's right to be worried. And the same dynamic in South Carolina. Um, this is a state Trump won by 14 points, but the margin is tightening there. And Lindsey Graham is far less popular than Trump. Jamie Harrison has proven to be an electrifying candidate, both on the stump um, and with his fundraising success. So I think you're seeing you know you're seeing that race really tighten uh there've been a couple polls that show Lindsey Graham only beating Jamie Harrison by um, by 5 or 6 points so things are starting to tighten in a in our direction for Jamie Jamie was Mr. Clyburn's floor director when I was a house chief of staff so you know I have a soft spot for that race and he's he you know look Jamie fits the state grew up poor in South Carolina went on to to Yale went on to a successful career working for Mr. Clyburn. I think you know and then you combine that with people's disdain for Lindsey Graham. Um, I think he has an interesting shot. Some of Lindsey Graham's big boosters in state, like people who raised money for his presidential bid have now bucked him and and, and become public supporters of, of Jamie Harrison. A lot of the more moderate Republicans are, are done with Lindsey Graham. So the state's tightening and it's it's interesting.
0: Well, not to get too greedy, obviously, we hope, uh, you know, I don't know if it'll be election night, probably sometime in November, we get to celebrate Donald Trump losing and Democrats winning back the Senate. But uh, it'd be really nice to add Lindsey Graham losing, you know, that soulless sycophant, yep. uh, you know, losing would kind of be the cherry on top.
1: And then, and also the mayor of
0: Shreveport,
1: Louisiana, just got in the race in, in Louisiana against Cassidy, um, decorated a rock war vet uh, president of his class at West Point. Mayor of Shreveport named uh, Adrian Perkins.
0: Incredibly impressive, you know. In the videos I've seen, uh, that's going to be an exciting race. So, talk to everybody about the timing, uh, timing of that race.
1: So that race, um, it'll be on the November ballot. The DSCC and the Louisiana Democratic Party is endorsed um, Adrian Perkins. Similar to the dynamic in the in Georgia, uh, Leffler Warnock race. It's a jungle primary on the November ballot, and then if nobody gets fifty percent. The top two candidates will face off December fifth. So, the job job one for for Mayor Perkins is um, get Cassidy under fifty percent. I think he can do it. This is a guy who um, grew up in humble beginnings in Shreveport, Louisiana. You know, was a president of his class class president at West Point, decorated Army veteran, uh, elected mayor of Shreveport, third largest city in the state. He's got a healthcare argument that's very compelling. On Medicaid expansion against uh, Dr. Senator Cassidy. So I think he can hold him under 50% and force a December 5th runoff. The last thing I'll just say, how the momentum is going, 97% of the Republican spending is on defense and 97% of Democratic spending is on offense. So um, I think that shows you that these guys can't get away from President Trump fast enough.
0: So, Scott, I'm just going to ask you last question to take off your Senate hat for a minute and put on a, a presidential hat. So you uh, ran uh, Patrick Murphy's uh, campaigns, where his chief of staff, for those of you who don't know, that's Bucks County, Pennsylvania, uh, kind of, you know, core battleground of the presidential race. Uh, Bucks was a battleground for us in the Obama years. We won it, if I recall, against Romney by around 4,000 votes, give or take. Uh, Hillary actually, you know, if I remember correctly, walked out of southeastern Pennsylvania with a, about a 450,000-vote lead, really overperformed obama in the suburbs had decent turnout in philly maybe not all you would have liked but you know didn't do as well in bucks county as people thought she won it, but but super narrowly in part because some of the more working class areas of bucks county really gravitated to trump i'm just curious and, and obviously bucks county is not arizona north carolina but you're you're seeing a lot of research here you you understand how voters are behaving in this election what could we expect out of bucks county uh in a biden trump matchup in your view
1: some of um, President Trump's sales pitch, particularly around unfair trade deals. The reason that President Obama did so well there in 2012 was that he used the auto rescue to paint Mitt Romney as the out-of-touch plutocrat while he's fighting for American jobs. The auto industry isn't mostly in in Western Pennsylvania and Michigan, but it, um, there are there are some small facilities in lower bucks as well. So I think that, that argument around the auto rescue is what helped President Obama against Mitt Romney. But fast forward to 2016, Trump was the one railing about unfair trade agreements with China. Somebody like Joe Biden, who was born in Scranton, and I think people will get that he's going to stand up to China. I think that will get some of those folks back. You know, A lot of Democrats were frustrated by, by unfair trade agreements with, with China. And I think our, you know, as our party recaptures that, we're going to recapture a lot of those battlegrounds like Lower Bucks and, and places like Michigan.
0: Well, if we do, I mean, uh, for those of you, and I think probably all of you listening to this, uh, you know, are paying a lot of attention this election. Um, you know, you ought to pick out your counties that you're going to follow closely on election night and the days after his votes gets counted in Bucks County, certainly at the top of the list. And, and I agree with Scott, that's going to be, if, if we can, uh, If we can repair some of the erosion in lower bucks, it's a good sign across the country that night. Well, listen, Scott, uh, great luck to you uh, in winning back the Senate and and both maybe beating McConnell, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, making sure he is no longer majority leader uh, and can— you know, which is going to be such a key ingredient to making the progress we as a country uh, need to make. So I would encourage all of you that have your favorite Senate races um, to continue to give uh, both of your time and and whatever money you can. If you live in those states, uh, really dig in and help our candidates here, uh, you know, in the closing 13 weeks. So Scott Fairchild, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much.